Welcome this evening. Doris tried to stop you. Storm Doris. And one or two people aren't here, including one of our speakers. But uh, blame Doris, uh, not me. But he will be here very soon, we, we hope. Um, uh, inshallah. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to make a couple of announcements quick before introducing. It's first of all to welcome you, of course, to this LSE Ideas event. I see some name, faces in the audience I, I have seen at some other events. That's great to welcome you back. And this also forms part of the London School of Economics LSE's Space for Thought uh, Literary Festival, which is running uh, all this week, which has uh, been a very successful venture, I think, over the last few years to expand the range and debate and to take it out into the public uh, and into the public space much more and outside, and outside of the institution. Just one thing to follow up on, there is a book signing or a triple book signing at the end of this, I think it's outside. Uh, each of the authors has one of their books out there to be signed and make sure they sign the right one, obviously. Uh, Jonathan, we have you with your Will China Dominate the 21st Century? Uh, Anne Applebaum, Anne to my left here, her book Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 44 to 56, will be out there in a, an affordable penguin. And uh, when Gideon arrives, uh, his book Easternization, which we launched here last, uh, last month, I think, or a couple of months ago anyway, uh, two months ago, uh, Easternization, War and Peace in the Asian Century, that will also be here. Now, earlier on I was talking to Anne about the title, and she says not, wasn't quite sure what it meant, which I, I think is, 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 is a pretty good way of starting. Um, we're always asked what we learn from history, and there's always three things we say we learn from history. First of all, there are no lessons to be drawn, and when we do try and draw lessons, they're always wrong. And, of course, history never repeats itself, so that's what we, seem, we think we do know. The only thing is that the term Cold War, or New Cold War, keeps coming up again. It's a bit like undead. You keep driving a stake through the heart of the beast, but the beast keeps rising out of the ground, out of the cemetery to, to come back and haunt us. Now, it certainly wasn't the way we saw the world or even think about the world uh, 20 years ago when China had not risen quite so high and a nice man called Mr. Yeltsin was actually in the Kremlin at the time. But today, of course, things look a whole lot different. China's rise seems to provoke the U.S., and China's neighbours into thinking that possibly China will not continue to rise peacefully. And uh, Putin's policies over the last few years look like they've injected quite a lot of new life, <laughs> new lease of life into NATO and to many other things. And there's a serious debate to be had there, which Anne in particular will, will engage with. Uh, if you want to sell a book today, it seems that 10, 15 years ago, if you were writing a book on the United States, if you didn't put the word empire in, it never sold put the word empire in today, it looks ridiculous. Um, and currently, of course, if you put the term uh, new Cold War in, that certainly helps sale. And I've just picked up a few of these. Edward Lucas's first book, which was like, you know, one of the prescient studies, I think, called New Cold War, written back in 2008, note. New Cold War, how the Kremlin menaces both Russia and the West. And then Stephen Cohen, an American historian with a rather different interpretation, of course, called Soviet Fates and the Lost Alternatives from Stalinism to the New Cold War. And then Robert Legvold, a colleague of mine actually at Columbia, just written another book called Return to Cold War. So everybody thinks there is a Cold War. The question is, what do we mean by it? And in fact, does, is the term either useful or indeed very, very misleading, which I, I tend to suspect that it is. I think you've got to analyse history in its specificity and not constantly be using historical analogies. 
Now we've got three speakers here tonight, two, two who are here and one who will be coming very, very soon. Uh, on my far left there is Jonathan Fenby, who's worked with us here in Ideas for, for some time, works on China, written a number of books on China, and of course, he's, I think your smallest book really uh, is the one that was on sale tonight, Will China Dominate the 21st Century? He's also done the Penguin History. And I think his note said it could be read in the morning. It could be read in the morning, and, and yes, indeed, it could be read. Sales on, point. Yeah, yeah. If you got on the London Underground, you might read it by tomorrow morning. Uh, if you get, if indeed you get home, um, um, and has written enormously and skillfully and with, with, with great prizes for name Pulitzer Prize, uh, particularly on Eastern Europe and, and Poland and a number of other things. And of course, Gideon Rackman, you know from the FT has written a number of books, writes regularly, of course, in the FT, and, of course, his recent book on Easternization. The way we're going to do this this evening, I'm going to kick off, really, not by asking the speakers to launch into uh, a diatribe or a, an, a, an argument or to give some ideas. I'm going to just ask a couple of questions initially, first of Anne, just to get things going, to get Anne's opinions, and then uh, on, on to Jonathan, and then hopefully when our third speaker arrives... Uh, Doris permitting, uh, we will ask him some questions too. So, Anne, I'm going to start with you. I think we agree, or I think you and I agree at least, that although there's a number of books with the, the words new Cold War in them, you, you, are, you yourself, like myself, are not very happy with that designation. And I'd, I'd be interested to know why you're not happy with that designation. And if it's not a new Cold War, then can we, do we have a characterization of it? Let's just start with that one, can we? Okay, well, thank you, um, and thanks for everybody raving the storm to get here. Um, I always like being at the LSE, having taught here a little bit, and mm -hmm. I'll be back here fairly soon. I'm sort of in the course of re-arriving. Um, so actually, there's almost nothing that irritates me more than the new Cold War um, <laughs> phrase, at the mo particularly at the moment. Um, just, you know, just to recap, you know, what was the Cold War? I mean... That's a longer conversation that Mick has spent most of his life answering that question. But, you know, it was certainly two things. Um, it was an ideological struggle, you know, an argument about how to organize society. Um, and there were different arguments on both sides. And sometimes it wasn't a very consistent struggle, and sometimes, you know, it was, it was more propaganda than reality. And, you know, that's, that's a whole other set of conversation. But it was, there was a there was a difference between, there was an argument about what's the best way to organize, you know, human civilization that separated the two sides. Um, secondly, it was a kind of a way of ordering the world. And actually, um, particularly from the current perspective, it was a form of world order. You know, um, no, better late than never. <laughs> hey, we blame Doris. Well done, well done, Jonathan. Congratulations. Thanks for getting You'll get a bonus. Right. Not from me. But I just hope you realize there's no way to get home. Uh, I'm not even come to think about that. Yeah, anyway, back to the anyway, new Cold so, War. No, so the, it's a, you know, it was a way of ordering the world. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it worked in different ways in different times, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but um, it was a way of seeing the world countries could align with one set of ideas or another. Sometimes that, of course, was also fake and so on, or it wasn't very authentic, or it was there were other power games going on, and the Cold War was really just a kind of fig, fig leaf covering other, other issues. But it was a way of seeing and interpreting the world, and it was it had this ideological struggle 
just, you know, between it. Mm. This is neither one of those elements is at all visible in the current world structure. Um, even if we focus just on the U.S. and Russia, um, one of the uh, one of the uh, really actually quite original aspects of Russian foreign policy now is that it doesn't seek to sell a particular ideology, at least not overtly. Um, it isn't a, you know, the Russians are not trying to convince other people to be like Russia. Um, they do that a bit in their own neighborhood, actually. They do that a bit in, in um, you know, in Central Asia and in, in um, you, you know, and they tried it in Ukraine. And by that, of course, what they really mean is they're interested in having countries with corrupt relationships to Russia within which Russian business elites can make money. So it's, but it's not a, it's not an ideology that promises something, you know. There's no, there's no future horizon. There's no, um, there's no ideal towards which we are working. Um, it's something much more prosaic. Um, instead, it's become a power that seeks to undermine. Um, and so Russia, Russia's activity in the West is almost entirely negative. Um, it seeks to undermine Western institutions. It seeks to undermine Western democracy, um, and it seeks to. Um, and once again, with some of the same aims. I mean, one of, certainly one of Russia's foreign policy aims now is essentially to make Europe safe for Russian corruption, you know, so that there can be more Russian business deals, so that Russian oligarchs can have more access to European markets and to European business elites. Uh, and that, that's really the idea. And towards that end, um, the Russian state um, uses actually a, quite a wide range of tools um, in order to do that. And they include, sometimes they look superficially similar mm. to things that were done in the past. Um, you, know, you know, it's not a new idea that the Russians would conduct anti-Western propaganda. I mean, they did it actually for many decades. Um, and it's not a new idea that they would seek to buy allies in the West. You know, they did that for many decades, too. It's not, a, it's not that new that they would seek to have relationships with Western political parties. They did that, too. They were the sponsor of most of the Western communist parties, you know, for many decades. Um, I suppose the difference now is that they aren't all that picky about who their, <laughs> who their friends are. And they're very happy with friends on the far left and the far right, for example, um, they're very happy to have relationships with Syriza in Greece, and they're very happy to have relationships with Marine Le Pen in France, whose party they fund, and they're very happy to deal with you know, a wide range of people. They're, but they're mostly interested in countries that will help in what they would like to see, which is the deterioration of the European Union in particular, but also NATO. Um, and eventually the goal is to expel the United States from Europe so that it will become an easier place for um, for Russians to do business and to have a play a more dominant political role, um, and that's more or less what they say. You know, I mean, it's not this is none of these are this is not a secret. You know, this is what Russian TV says. If you watch it, you'll see this is what they're saying. They hope will happen. Um, you know, and, the, and the, one of the oddities um, has been over the last few years is how long it's taken anybody in the West to be interested in this as a problem or as a real threat. And maybe, maybe fair enough. It seemed like a fringe issue for a long time, um, you know, so what? Russia had television programs that were, you know, that were, that attacked Western democracies, but, you know, why should anybody be bothered like that? It's, it's become much more interesting in the last, um, well, particularly since last summer and since the, I mean, I've actually been following this for a number of years and I've seen Russian intervention in a number of elections, um, you know, in Ukraine, for, certainly, and Poland and elsewhere. Um, and so I wasn't that surprised by it, but for many people, the Russian 
strange intervention in the U.S. election was a real surprise. And so that's suddenly woken an interest in what, um, what Russia's goals might be in the West. Um, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more if you want. Mm. I don't know if that's really the point of mm. this mm. question, answering the question. But, mm. but, the, but it is a, you know, as I say, some of it is superficially similar to things that were done in the past. But, yeah. but it's now, um, as I said, it's now not ideological. And also, actually, in a lot of ways, it's a lot more sophisticated. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Russians were, I think, the first power to see that if the Internet is an open system mm. and if we're all talking about politics on the Internet then you can intervene in other countries' politics that way. You know, you don't need, I don't know, troops of people on the ground, or you don't need, you know, you, know, you don't even need a physical presence. Um, what you need is you need to understand how social media works. You need to understand how trolling operations work. Um, you need to have some understanding of electoral psychology. You need to study how it works in each country and sort of then make use of it. And I think that's been their modus operandi for several years. They've, they've been doing it and working on it for a long time. And then we saw um, the results How much? summer. How much of this, just to come back on the question, I agree with you on the issue of new Cold War. I mean, it's, it's misleading. It's a bad historical analogy, and it doesn't help us think creatively about what to do if we can. But how much, one of the reasons, surely, that people use this term is they look at who is in the Kremlin, Mr. Putin, who came from the KGB. Hmm. They've had certain of the things that he said, like... The, collapse the USSR was a geostrategic catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Is it not that there are traces from the past? There are lessons we le- learn, if not by us, but by them or by, by Putin and his group, which do derive from the Soviet era. Yeah, and no, that's, no, that's what, a different question. Yes. I mean, so yes, absolutely. I think yeah. Putin's, you know, his, his, the way he sees the world was very much shaped by the KGB sure. and many of the people around him were very much shaped by the KGB. I mean, even sometimes when I hear him talk, you know, he'll say, the way he talks, for example, about um, about NGOs and independent organizations mm. in his country, you know, he assumes from the beginning that they must be anybody who's not inside the state, who's not part of the state, is suspicious. You know, this is a very this is a KGB way of thinking mm. about the world. Mm. You know, that mm. the KGB thinks that we need to have everything under our control. We need to be able to manipulate um, everything in society, the economy, um, you know, politics, and also sort of public life, and if, if there are groups that are in disagreement with us, those are by definition enemies, they're unpatriotic, mm-hmm. and they're probably sponsored by foreigners. Yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a kind of classic. And the, and, the de- and the deeper suspicion of the West and the West's intentions. And the deeper suspicion of the West, and I think also maybe a kind of fear of the West. Yeah. I mean, at base, I mean, this is also something we can go back to if, if people want to, sure. but I mean, at base... You know, Putin's interest in undermining the West is a, is a domestic. I mean, what he is afraid of is a um, you know is that Russians you know will begin to admire some aspects of life in the West. For example, you know that there's a bit less corruption and that you know it's not you know it's it's run in a different way. And they'll begin to admire rule of law and they'll begin to ask why can't we have some of those things here? I mean, in a way, Putin's great nightmare was what happened on the Maidan in Ukraine when mm-hmm. people started waving EU flags and saying. You know, we want our corrupt leaders out and we want rule of law. I mean, that's what they were mm-hmm. shouting for. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that is actually the, you know, that sort of the, the ideals of the European Union, mm-hmm. you know, mocked though they are, um, particularly in this country, um, are, are exactly what, you know, uh, you know, it's what Ukrainians want and what Putin would like Russians not to want because mm-hmm. they come very much in contradiction with what mm-hmm. he is, yeah. what he stands for. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is exactly the opposite. And so the, his foreign policy is really a way of keeping himself in power. Mm. Um, and so that is, you know, it's, 
there, so while there are some ways of thinking that are similar and there may be some <clears throat> techniques that are similar, mm. the, 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 the purpose of yeah. um, his foreign policy is a little bit different from what... Just, just one, fo- one follow-up before I move on to, to ask Jonathan a question. Actually, I remember, because I go back a long way, as you pointed out, to the Cold War, um, George Cannon, in his famous article, which didn't go under his name, but under the name X, Sources of Soviet Conduct in the 1947, July, also made the point, very similar to yours, if I might say so, that one of the reasons the Soviet Union then preferred a conflict with the West wasn't just because of ideological differences, but it also served internal purposes. Yeah. Having an enemy abroad yeah. actually served for domestic legitimation, and in some ways Putin has done quite well out of that, has he not? Yeah, no, no, he's done extremely well. <coughs> I mean, that's, of course, not unknown in other societies. But, to be sure. Um, but, but yes, absolutely, um, it's a, that, was, that was part of the, the reason why Stalin did it, and you know, I've just been reading all afternoon, actually, <laughs> stuff from the 1930s, which is very much all about the enemies who are coming to get us, and because of the enemies, we have to look harder for Indeed. the hidden enemies inside our own country and so on. So it's, that's all, that all goes way back. Mm. Um, but, but um, you know, the, the difference is what is the ultimate goal? Yeah, um, I agree. Like, the goal is to keep himself and his coterie in power yeah. and to yeah. make sure that their corrupt hold over Russian resources and the bulk of Russian money stays how it is and that they mm. aren't threatened. Moving on, we're doing this in the Q&A way, by the way, Gideon, if you don't mind. You may have some prepared comments, so please, please, please talk. I'm just going to take, move on to, I know you moving on to, to Jonathan. Jonathan, we, you are the China specialist here, and the French specialist, but I, you can talk about, well, you can talk about National Front if you like, because there's clearly a relationship, it is, it is argued, between, uh, between Mr. It's not, it's not just argued, we know it. No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be objective, because I'm no, no, at the no, LSE. No, no, I mean, objectively speaking, she objectively, acknowledges it. Objectively it's speaking, the... the, the okay, fine. Making all right. money comes from Russia. All right, I was just trying to be pusillanimously liberal. <laughs> uh, just, just, just for two minutes. Don't do it very... I don't do it very often. Anyway, the question I was going to ask you, Jonathan, was quite... What is the relationship between the collapse of the Soviet Union and modern China? Because every time I have been to China several times... They talk about many, many, many things, but the one thing, the lesson they draw, going back to the question of history, is the collapse of the USSR in 1991 and the lessons that they have drawn from that. And that seems to me most, the most, one of the most significant ways of thinking about modern China, not just in Chinese terms, but in terms of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, it is, certainly. The, uh, by the last count that I saw, there have been a 100 reports by Chinese think tanks <laughs> on why the Soviet Union collapsed. Only 100, my gosh. Uh, and most, they come up with slightly different uh, conclusions. But as I gather, and Cherry may uh, put me right on this, having probably read most of the hundred, whereas I've done very few. wrote a couple it, of them. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> the main reasons were, were that it was a closed economy, the Soviet Union, and that it got into an arms race with the uh, US, which it couldn't sustain because of the nature of its economy. There, those are the two main mm. things, mm. and corruption then follows on uh, uh, from that. Um, but it, interestingly, uh, if you go forward, go forward to 2012 when Xi Jinping uh, took became the, the general secretary of the Communist Party in China. I think his first public speech, or it's the first speech that was made public, um, he said there was a phrase in it, roughly like. Why did the Soviet Union fall? We must ask ourselves that question. And his answer was because when the challenge came, there was nobody strong enough to stand up for the system. Mm. 
Now, I'm not quite sure that he said no body or no force, but he allied himself with, with the Communist Party, so that doesn't really matter. And that is certainly a very important uh, leitmotif, which has run through the Xi years there. You, to, to, what, I mean, Anne was giving you know, what Putin's bottom line is, if you like. The bottom line for Xi Jinping is to preserve and, if possible, strengthen the power of the Communist Party, with which he identifies completely, and he is the personification in many ways mm. uh, of the, the Communist Party. And everything flows from that. Economic policy, social policy, internet policy, and foreign policy, uh, indeed. And that's that's the thing at the centre. And I think the collapse of the Soviet Union has a very, very important line mm. element to play in that. And, of course, there's always this lurking uh, line in, in, in Chinese communist thinking, which goes back to Mao. I mean, it goes back, I suppose, to, to the Long March, really, uh, in the early 30s, where the Chinese have never trusted the, the, the Russian communists there. I mean, you get this where, you know, it was a famous, the common term, uh, Brown advisor who led the communist forces in the th early 30s to fight frontal battles which mm. they lost against the nationalists leading to the long march which Mao then took control and you get all the time that Mao okay at times he did what Stalin told him to but he's always suspicious mm. of communism if you like as mm. Uh, preached by uh, the Soviets because they're trying to get him to do things. I mean, remember, this comes right up to 1948, um, before the great um, battle in eastern China, which the communists won and which won the civil war. Stalin was actually telling Mao at that point, stop your troops on the Yangtze. Mm -hmm. He wanted a divided China, which would be weak. And Mao at one point said later on, you know, Stalin gave me nothing but trouble. The whole time. Yeah, and a few other people too. A lot of people said that about him. So, you know, <laughs> posthumously, normally. Yeah. So, there, there was always this thing, and then, of course, the Sino Soviet split, uh, sure. which came later. But this, this goes back, and for me, you, you mentioned ideology in the Cold War. I mean, yes, we get a lot of ideology from Xi Jinping at the moment, the attacks on Western values, uh, and, you know, the. Yeah, they're uh, more ideological than the Russians. But, yeah. But, but, but it's not. It, yeah. Sorry, I'm perhaps cutting hairs here, uh, splitting hairs. But in a sense, it's not, if I can say so, ideology, ideology for ideology's sake. Mm -hmm. I, th I think my analysis is Xi Jinping uses uh, the Marxist-Maoist uh, Xi Jinping thought, which we're told is now about to be published in a large number of volumes for everybody to read, um, as a way of enforcing uniformity, of making everybody march behind him. I mean, you know, when he says everybody should, every night you should read the sacred texts of the movement before going to bed, yeah. Mm -hmm. He doesn't actually expect people to do that, but that, you have to subscribe to that. And I think there was this feeling that the Soviet Union wasn't very good actually, and making sure everybody in line, all were rather crude. And of course this, again, just to finish, is not a communist thing in China. This goes back to the first emperor, mm. which was burying the Confucian scholars alive, etc., etc. And this idea of a single ideology, and you use the law, not the rule of law, but rule by law, to keep everybody in line mm. and on, on ideology there. Yeah. And I think they just thought the as they do in a number of ways. We were talking earlier, you know, it's talking to some Chinese when Putin was um, uh, cozying up to Xi uh, four or five years ago and so on. I was in Beijing talking to Chinese uh, late at night. What do you think about the Russians? And they all said, oh, they're hopeless. A lot of ignorant Russian peasants, mm -hmm. ignorant drunken peasants, I'm sorry. Drunken, sorry. Yes. And, the, 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 you know, and I think that their idea, the Chinese think they've got, it's not a cold war that they're having, but they've actually got a, a more efficient and effective 
authoritarian. Which kind of ra- raises the because you you talked about Stalin and Mao and, and and that relationship, which was a very peculiar one. Stalin, I think, kept Chairman Mao waiting six weeks as well, which is which was quite an well, interesting way of dealing with... He, he, he refused, but Mao wanted to go to... <laughs> in 1949. In 40, yeah. No, in 47. There was a, a meeting set up, yeah. and Stalin said, we sent a message back saying, I think the phrasing was, we think it would be more convenient if you stayed at home. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then when, when Mao went to, to <laughs> finally... that feeling so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was every morning. Uh, and when Mao went to, to finally got to Moscow in 49, he yeah. was sent out to a dacha. Yeah, that's right. And... Stalin wouldn't see him, and he famously, Mao, wrote, if you'll excuse the phrase, I've got nothing to do here except to eat and sleep and shit. Uh, that sounds like and, Chairman Mao. I must say. Yeah, and eventually he was. You know, he okay, did, he the, the follow-on follow from that, then, because uh, we, we talked about Russia with, with Anne, we began to talk about Russia with Anne, and, but it's interesting, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, on the Russia-China relationship now. Because after all, they split badly, ideologically, strategically, in all sorts of ways, and it went on for 30 years. Uh, And you could even say that the U.S. exploited that difference very, very successfully. Nixon and Kissinger in the 70s maybe even contributed in some ways to the end of the Soviet Union, you know, how you you judge that. But there's been an enormous rapprochement. Uh, Particularly in in the 90s, it began, began, I suppose it began then but it's really accelerated i just wonder how seriously you take that because i take it a lot more seriously than quite a lot of other people seem to kind of think they're very divided and then i'll bring in sure and getting maybe come in on that as well it's primarily it's a commercial relationship it's a relationship of convenience on both sides Mm. that china at a point when europe was buying very little gas from uh, from Russia, China came in with a big gas deal because it, it fitted again with, as always, with Chinese domestic policy, which is that they wanted to move away from coal and towards gas. Mm. Um, and there were all these agreements, which they're still negotiating five years later. Gas, the Chinese yeah. are pushing the, the, the price down. They promised a lot of infrastructure spending under the One Belt One Road in Russia, which I haven't seen very much of so far. The Chinese are getting more advanced weapons, particularly jet fighters, which the Russians weren't giving them originally, um, but which now seem to be being supplied. Um, so there is that, there is a, certainly a closer relationship, but I think it's probably quite fragile in the end, and mm. there are a lot of border disputes. You know, if you go to the Siberian border um, there with the glaring difference on the two sides. But don't they, have a, don't they have something in common? I mean, two authoritarian systems, they do share some kind of common history, yeah. problematic one. Yeah, Gideon, I mean, I, what you, I what's, your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I was uh, on the trip before last when I, when I was in Beijing, I, I was struck by how the Chinese view of what was been going on in Hong Kong shortly beforehand was very reminiscent of the Russian view of what had been happening Mm. in Ukraine. So they didn't accept that this was some kind of indigenous movement for democracy. They saw the hand of America Mm. behind it. Mm. Uh, They had a very similar fear of a colour revolution uh, and a kind of insecurity about the the system and a belief that the West was, just as the Russians see it, using NGOs to undermine them. And I think that that shared view in Moscow and Beijing of kind of Western plots aimed at universalism, that's another great bugbear. Yeah. Both, uh, liberalism. Absolutely. The idea that the whole world, uh, that America believes the whole world will become democratic 
and is plotting to make it that way and therefore to overthrow them is common, I think, to yeah. both of them. And that's quite a lot, therefore, to unite China yeah. and Russia together. They, they've got a common enemy a, and a common view of the world. I, they, there's also with some differences. Uh, I mean, Jonathan probably knows better than me, a bit of a cult of Putin in China. I mean, books yeah. about him sell very well because there's a sort of anti-Americanism there. And here's this guy who's managed to stand up to the Americans and uh, there's a certain respect for that. Um, but I, I wonder whether... You know, if there's a strategic thought behind what Trump is doing with Russia, and you know maybe it's all to do with business or blackmail, who knows? But it might be that he's trying to do a sort of reverse Kissinger. Uh, and, 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 and indeed, Kissinger, I'm afraid, is, is still on the scene, has been to both Moscow and Beijing since the, since the election. And the idea is that now, actually, it's China that you need to isolate, and Russia is in this sort of, uh, could be drawn into a sort of civilizational conflict with the rising Asian power. I think there is something there. Certainly in the thinking of Steve Bannon, I mean, he seems to be much more alarmed by the Chinese threat. He's talked about a possible war between the US There's and China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you, you've had, actually, since you mentioned Kissinger, interestingly, the whole US, I think, handling of China has changed hugely within the space of 10 days, which is down to, maybe in part, the fact that Kissinger was in... Beijing and came back and had a meeting with Trump when he got back. And you've seen Tillerson, the, the Secretary of State, <coughs> Mattis at Defence, Gary Cohn, uh, the economic advisors in the White mm. House, they wrenched China policy round from the kind of Bannon line there. I mean, you can still have a 4 a.m. tweet, of course, and which will upset all <laughs> this, but... You never uh, quite know. Well, no, but we, we, have, we now have this problem with all facets of American foreign policy. I was at the Munich Security Conference last weekend, Munich, and... Yeah. It was really, it was one of the most bizarre two days I, I've ever had, you know, but, you know, American official after American official would make speeches and statements saying we all, you know, we, 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 we stand by NATO, we believe in European security and so on and so on, nothing has changed. And then as soon as they would stop speaking, everybody would turn to the person next to them and say, well, do you believe that? And mm. the answer, you know, nobody knows. Yeah, and, so, yeah. and so, yes, I think in the United States now there is a conflict, an open conflict now between a kind of more traditional Republican view of foreign policy, um, very broadly defined, and a Bannon worldview, which is much more to do with race, actually. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why Bannon doesn't like China is because they're not white. No, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. Russia is white and Christian, and so we should be on the side of them against, you know, the beige people. I mean, and that's... I'll just bring Gideon in yeah. then. Gideon, what, sorry. What, no, 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 not at all. No, 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 no. Gideon, what's your take on what, on all of that? On the well, I, I think that yeah, there has been um, a, clearly a course correction. I mean, it was quite alarming <laughs> for the first few weeks, where challenging the the one China policy, and then Tillerson's comments about the South China Sea. You really did think maybe they're actually heading towards a conflict mm. with China. Uh, now, I mean, the Chinese actually won that one rather. Yeah, they, rather well. they just basically gave Trump the silent treatment, refused to speak to him until he said, oh, all right, I acknowledge the one China policy. And then a phone call was, <laughs> was made. But even more than that, they made a point in the Chinese announcement reporting of both uh, Trump's call and the new Treasury Secretary's call, mm. the, the Chinese accounts, accounts began at, their, at the request of the United States. Yeah. Xi Jinping agreed to a telephone call. Yeah. And that is very... She imperial, you know. Absolutely. But then I think that there are still issues, though, that, that are yet to be resolved. I mean, I don't think it's, it's back to sort of plain sailing in no, the no, South no, China no, no, Sea, so no, no, to speak, no, no. because there's, there's the trade question uh, with, you know, that Trump, after all, has appointed a new head of the Trade Council who's 
authored a film and book called Death by China, which gives me the general tenor of it. Um, well, that'll, and, that'll sell uh, better than New Cold War. There are three protectionists uh, in power. Will, will they push that? And if they do, I mean, just on this theme of what from one Cold War to another, I mean, I think that one of the things that really does differentiate the Cold War from the current phase of international relations is that China and America are massive economic partners. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's a huge difference with, with Russia. And Russia has a major stake in financial Absolutely. markets in the so, West. So you yeah. have a globalization, a globalized world system displaced a, a bifurcated one. Yeah. And, and the integration of the elites of these companies yeah. into the global capitalist system was kind of crucial in, in, in giving them an interest in stability as well. But if a Navarro-style economic policy takes hold, and actually you move towards a trade war, then that, uh, in, then, then that sense that economics is actually a force for peace yeah. could, could be hacked away, and you, you enter a much more straightforwardly confrontational relationship with China. Because at the moment you've got a, a relationship between the US and China which has strong elements of conflict and strong elements of cooperation, but the cooperative bits are economic. Yeah. And if, if Trump actually moves to a trade war, then you've really only got strategic rivalry and economic rivalry, and that's much less healthy. Does, does that, in this question to all three, maybe start back with you, Gideon, on the liberal order, is it over? Um, is, is this it? Are we in the beginning of the end of an order we thought was coming into being after the end of the Cold War, the so-called end of history, the notion that globalization would unite all countries together under within market forces? Some people even believe that. Clinton believed that for Russia, at least in the 1990s, uh, you know, that kind of notion of integration. Are we really facing something which is, we're beginning to move into a new, something very, very, very new, I, I mean, even if we don't want to call it a new culture? No, no, I mean, it's a funny thing. I've, I've come to, you know, students used to fear the idea that big corporations run the world, but I rather hope they do, because yeah. uh, they, <laughs> they would push back against an attempt to dismantle the globalised economic system if McDonald's, Apple, etc. can go on knock on Trump's door and say, don't even think about it, you're going to trash the economy. You know, the, we sell more iPhones in China than we do in the US, more Kentucky Fried Chicken in China. You know, just remember that. Right. That actually would be, I think, be quite a good thing. Okay. Um, but uh, if you do have a dismantle, you know, if protectionism really takes hold in America and then in France and then in then perhaps you'll, you will get institutions like the World Trade Organization just essentially collapsing. But again, on this Cold War analogy, I, mean, I wonder whether, and I'm aware there are lots of people, international relations students here, who probably studied all these systems, but whether it's more like the interwar period or beginning to look more like it, where you have an America that decided not to join the League of Nations, sort of withdrew itself from the international system. If Trump takes that sort of isolationist uh, element, I mean, who knows, he might, might have bits of both, then you, then you can have yeah. a kind of an unravelling of the international order, a resurgence of authoritarianism, which also we're seeing around the world. So it would be more like the 1920s and 30s. So it's less like the Cold War, you're yeah. implying yeah. that it may have been like yeah. an yeah. interwar period, which we know how it ended. Yeah, it wasn't so great. Jonathan, what should I take But China is very well placed to move, <laughs> if, if that does happen. Okay. I, mean, I think it's probably more unilateralist than isolationist that you're going to get from, from, from Trump. But if that does happen, you know, that will make China's day. There's no doubt. And you can already see in the space of the last three months how China has reacted to that. You had 
the weekend at the end of November when Trump said he was going to pull the US out of TPP, which was probably a dead duck anyway. Uh, that happened to coincide with an APEC summit meeting in Peru, and she made a very pro-free trade you know, speech, mm. etc. And the Chinese members of the delegation went round all the, the Pacific developing countries there and said, ah, look, we all want a free trade area, don't we? Yes, the Americans aren't going to do it, so we've got an alternative. And they have got an alternative. Mm. It's not actually theirs. They've copied it from someone else, but um, not unknown. Uh, and and they, they could say to Vietnam and other countries, and our scheme has the great advantage, because unlike TPP, you don't have to sign up to any regulations on legal systems, on uh, intellectual property protection, on environment, or on labor. You're free. Mm. And then you had Davos, where she... Uh, made his speech and <coughs> quoting liberally from Dickens and other people uh, and Klaus Schwab all the most cliche uh, quotes yeah, they weren't terrible. <laughs> you'll, you'll never get Trump, you'll never get Trump it quoting it was the best of we're told <laughs> <laughs> it's a far far better thing I have done Charles Dudley he has Chekhov and uh, Flaubert on his bookshelf and looks at them every night I'm uh, sure. uh, <laughs> how do you know that that's very good I've read that oh, in right. propaganda you, I've read you read that. it somewhere I read, I read a lot of Bright it was in the newspaper it was in the newspaper it must be true so he went to Davos and Klaus Schwab uh, embraced him and said we've all been so worried and last here is our yes. source of relief da, da, da. but if you actually read um, if you take the trouble to read or listen I'm told half the people fell asleep uh, to Xi's speech where he gets down to, he says yes we're all for globalisation doing anything else is like locking yourself in a, clo- in a dark room and so on but this is globalisation with Chinese characteristics it's not Bill Clinton who was saying globalisation will, will make them more like us and we'll all be lovey-dovey together as nice liberal Democrats. It's saying every country defends its own system. And that's the starting point for China. Globalization is not going to be allowed to in any way interfere with the domestic political system. Just a footnote on on that Davos speech. The the reaction to I was there and the reaction to him was quite interesting. So that some of the European uh, commissioners, one of them said to me, you know, this is our opportunity, Trump's gone off the range, and now the EU has to forge a much closer relationship with China, and we should all be getting in there. But then one of the trade people uh, said to me, you know, actually, if you deal with China on trade, the idea that these people are the champions well, well, of free trade is just absurd. Um, so uh, it's, it, there was a degree of skepticism. Yeah. And openness, I mean, there's a wonderful uh, irony, to step on it. the very day that she was making the speech and saying the, how wonderful the internet is and, and all this and communication, China introduced new legislation where all VPNs, which is what you use to get mm. around the Great Four-Hour Wall, have to be logged with the authorities. Oh, really? So they close them down their life. Gosh, the, the next day... Yeah. Li Keqiang, the Prime Minister, wrote an article for Bloomberg saying China is, quote, an island of openness and stability in a troubled world. Uh, well, Bloomberg mm-hmm. is blocked in China. Mm-hmm. So, so, so uh, you do see slight... Just, just moving it along, because you've, you've used the T word, Trump, several times so far. In terms of responses, well, let's just take Russia and China, but start with Russia, and Were you surprised by the reaction in Russia to Trump's victory and, and the way it was seen. Maybe we could pull that into a more, more general debate about the Russia-Trump relationship because this is something I've never, ever in my life before seen. Well, if, you'd, if you'd read Russian media in the previous years, you would not have been surprised no. at all. Trump has been a figure there for years. During the election campaign, yeah. he was... Um, 
he was pushed every day by yep. not just by RT and so on, but also by um, Russian state media inside Russia. Um, he was, uh, you know, there was a there was a. I mean, this is a longer conversation, but there was a there were trolling operations organized. I mean, I d we don't know who organized them. We know that the origin of the bots that were used were Russian. So mm. there were there was a massive trolling operation that was that would repeat RT. Um, you know, slogans and, 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 and repeat them over and over again in social mm -hmm. media. Trump himself, um, actually during the campaign at several points, used Russian slogans. So you would see something that's kind of Russian narrative would appear on television. Um, and then Trump himself would use it in the evening. I mean, that it was very, there was a very close connection between, and you know, I don't know which way it worked. I mean, I don't know who was influencing who, mm -hmm. but it would happen that the Russians would, there was a line, for example, that, Obama invented ISIS. This was actually yes. originally a yeah, Russian a propaganda Russian. line. And at a certain point in the campaign, Trump started repeating it. Um, there was a line that Hillary Clinton will start World War III, yeah. and we need to be afraid because she'll start World War III. This was a, this was a Russian thing for many, for many weeks. And then Trump picked it up and started using it at a certain point. So, I mean, the, the, there was total alignment between what the Russians were saying over the last year and what, he's, what he says. Mm, mm. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't, you don't need to have a spy you know, secret arrangement in order to see it. I mean, it was very public. Um, and so there is a, certainly, um, certainly Trump as, you know, up through and to the election was extremely close to them, both ideologically and, um, you know, we don't know the details of his business relationship, but we know there's been an enormous amount of Russian investment in his companies. Some people think it's what saved his companies. Mm -hmm. um, there, is, there have been a number of people in his campaign who have long experience in Russia, um, including, um, you know, Paul Manafort, who was actually the person who got Viktor Yanukovych invent, um, elected. Who was the? This was the Russian. I mean, the Ukrainian president, who was the one who mm. was chased out after the miner, who ran away actually after the miner. Yeah. So um, you know, and he and there were several other people around. I mean, that those are the people who are now under investigation by the FBI in the United States. It's, you know, the only thing you know they were under investigation before the election as well. Mm. So it's a there. You know, without knowing any, without a secret, you know, bribery or you know, hidden sex tapes or whatever. You know, even without all that, there is an incredibly close relationship, and it goes back many years, and it appears to be, you know, at least some business level to it, and also appears to be in a relationship of sympathy. Um, you know, what is Putin? He's a, he's a very rich person who uses money to go into politics and then now uses politics to make money, and I think that's what Trump wants to be, and it's, he's not very, you know, doesn't really disguise that. And mm. so... You know, this is a Putin is a kind of role model for him. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's what he mm -hmm. wants to be. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I genuinely I don't think in the U.S. system it's going to be possible, mm -hmm. but he will try. Mm -hmm. And of course, in trying to be that, he will do a huge amount of damage. I mean, you asked about the liberal world order. Mm -hmm. You know, the you know, mm -hmm. we weren't talking about. I wrote a column a year and a half ago um, saying, you know, is is the is the world order as we know it, is the West as we know it, mm. you know, about to disappear. And at the time, this was a little eccentric, mm -hmm. sort of 20, spring 2015. It was, you know, and I said, we only need three things. We need Brexit, we need Trump to win, and we need um, Marine Le Pen to win in France. And well, now we're Two actually getting close. Um, be, you know, because the, these, are, these are, you know, what's the threat to the West now is not, this is, was another oddity of Munich, actually, um, the threat to the West, and it was you know thing that people are is not coming from Russia actually or China. 
um, except to the extent that Russia influences U.S. politics and, and U.S. influences the president. Threat to the West is coming from within the West mm. um, and from the from the political movements that are now that are that are themselves anti-trade and anti mm. Mm. Um, and anti-corporation or anti you know anti-immigrant actually in, in large part. Mm. Mm. And that's where the that's where the challenge is coming from. And so. Um, it's not, you know, it's not that we need more tanks on our borders. You know, it's a, it's more of an it's a internal issue. Let me pick, get in. Do you want to pick up? On that? What is is this the threat to the West? It may not be the end of the liberal order. Are you a little? Are you a bit more skeptical about that? Well, no. I mean, or would I, you I, be more skeptical? Would it be less? I was skeptical just feeling a bit down because I, I also wrote a column like like, like that, but it was obviously I was. I think it's three months after you. Uh, <laughs> I was about. You're, to not, make you're not confessing to plagiarism no. in front of no, another. Every, eventually, everybody eventually everybody writes. Everybody, writes, everybody about. writes about. Yeah, but look, no, I think that the the inter- put it this way. I think it must. It's if you how it's weird how lonely Germany must be feeling right now. The last I mean, liberal bastion in yeah, Europe. Yeah, I mean, and, and how quickly their isolation has happened. Mm. You know, until very recently, the Germans could sit in Berlin and they had a good relationship with France. Britain was inside the EU. They had a very solid relationship with uh, the US. Poland and Hungary had joined the EU and had democratized. And now it's all kind of going wrong. And that is they haven't changed. The world around them has changed. Mm. Mm. Um, And it's a sign of, you know, how widespread this is that almost every key relationship for Berlin is sort of going wrong. Um, so in that sense, yeah, the liberal order is in an advanced state of disrepair and the French elections become really, really crucial because uh, if Marine Le Pen wins, um, then I think, yeah, who do, who do, they, who do they look to? I mean, uh, Merkel said when people said oh, she and Germany are the last hope of the West that that was grotesque and I can understand why she felt that because it's too much of a burden. Mm-hmm. to put on a country mm-hmm. like Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but they really will be isolated yeah. if, if uh, France yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, do you want to pick up on any of that? Maybe Ch- China's response to the Trump election. Yeah, well, I, it looks I, to me I like, still don't think Le Pen's going to win, but that's, we yeah, can talk about that You're a French that's, specialist. That's, that's, that's a separate thing. You're going to make a prediction, wrong. are you? I'll be proved wrong. The polls have told you, have they? <laughs> Yeah, okay. She hasn't got the reservoir of votes. To, to get, to <laughs> okay. She's she's also you know the big difference. Anyway. She's she's really an establishment figure. No, but that's well. the she's, yeah. she's she's been around. You know, she's we not were writing a, about her ten years ago. I was just saying that I was in Paris on Monday and people were having the "Where should I move to?" conversation. Well, what was your answer, John? I, I, well, I, I said Britain, but they said no, 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 no. no, no. I can't imagine why. Lack of imagination. Just to answer your question on China, probably the best reaction i mean it's you know in a sense china the chinese couldn't they thought the trump was quite funny for a long time <laughs> and of course they made uh, trump lavatory paper uh, made a lot of money oh yes yeah, so you can buy chinese lavatory paper with trump you me some, and, yeah you've got some okay, thank you. and a lot of little little do- all the little dolls of trump are made in guangdong and so on so on so they've made some money also out of we'll it. make they, america great hats and the america, exactly the america <laughs> they're selling well in the, selling well in beijing yes, the kind of ideological reaction yeah. was in there was a piece in people's daily which said that what had happened in America, the election, proved the collapse of capitalist democracy and the triumph, wait for it, of socialism there and so on. And they noted that the winning 
presidential candidate had not mentioned human rights once during uh, the campaign. Therefore a victory for socialism. Therefore a victory for Chinese style socialism. And also for Chinese style meritocracy. There. I mean, it's the idea that Daniel Bell's been pushing for a long time, yes. that democracy is a really terrible way of, course, of selecting leaders that, and you know, yes. the Chinese do it much better. This is that much better way. So it's seen, in a sense, as a vindication, I think, in China, and also as an opportunity, as I was saying, <laughs> on all kinds of fronts for China to move into areas which the US might leave mm. vacant for mm. it. I don't think China can do that long term because of the nature of its system, which actually inhibits it uh, from exploiting any weaknesses and, uh, and vacuums that uh, Trump might open up. It's limited what China can do. After all, its only treaty ally, famously, is North Korea. And when mm. you know, that's your only alliance, you're, you're a bit mm. stuck uh, there. The Chinese don't really trust anyone uh, outside, I think, to, to, for a commitment, a long-term commitment. But certainly, you know, in terms of the liberal order, yeah, they think they've, uh, they're being proved right. They're being vindicated. Except, except that isn't it the case that, you know, that, that the Chinese have really been beneficiaries so oh, far of, of what we're calling the liberal yeah, order, yeah, you know, the rule of law, you know, trade agreements, yeah. WTO. You know, law yeah. of the sea, whatever. And the Chinese, you know, unlike the Russians, who yeah. feel themselves to have lost from that, the Chinese, yeah. you know, I would think they would worry about the end they, of they, that. They, yeah. They've been winners of that, but they want, so long as it remains outside China, that's what I'm saying the whole time, yeah. you know, the rule of law, for instance, they want it outside China, but they don't want it inside China. They want the rule by law. Yeah, but aren't China they worried that Trump will end the, you know, international trade agreements that they depend on for their survival? No, they they no. think. I mean, going to what Gideon was saying, that the lobbying pressure on Capitol Hill business from American corporations, I mean, Apple, your iPhone, 75% of the, the price of the iPhone stays with Apple. Only 6% goes to the Chinese companies that assemble it in Shenzhen. China, and they think, I mean, Walmart, you know, suddenly you had a 45 uh, percent tariff on Chinese exports, what that does for American inflation and the American consumer. The Chinese think, and they can source a lot of the things they get from America, they can source elsewhere. Actually, just on this, this whole, wrong, the whole, but... whole question of, you know, is the liberal order crumbling? And maybe we, we might be being a little hysterical from our point of view. And maybe one way of checking this is, does, does the behavior of the Chinese and Russian elites change? Do they stop putting their money in America, mm. uh, Switzerland? Do they stop buying flats there, educating their children in the West? I don't think as yet... But the liberal will. world will suggest a lot more than just... Oh, sure, but I think it's partly rule of law. It's this sort of sense that your money is kind of safe there yeah, because, of, because, the, yeah. because the politician can't ring up and say, well, just, you know, close that account down. Yeah. You're a bit safer. I mean, Xi Jinping's called his daughter back from Harvard. Oh, has she? Is she coming to LSE? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> One final question to each of you. I mean, on Russia and comparing it to China, just for the moment, I listened to a lecture last night uh, on Russia, and uh, and the general thesis was, in the end, Russia is in decline. Because it's in decline, in the end, this is going to force it over time because of its internal problems. It's, this is the argument put forward, to the point that the policy it is now pursuing is almost counterproductive to quote unquote its interests, and that therefore this in over time will accelerate the. Not rapprochement, but the Russians, Putin will have to rethink what he's been doing. And the, the other argument is, and I didn't agree with it, by the way, is that, well, he's lost a lot because of the policies he's been pursuing in terms of economics, in terms of prestige. What's your take on that? So oh, both, I, I, both this true. This argument has been around for yeah, a long time. I, know. Um, I mean, it's, it's complicated because, I mean, one of the 
you know, step back from Russia and look at what Putin's policies are. Putin's policies are not good for Russians. No, I mean, the the worst, the sort of the, the, the biggest victims of what he, I mean, his war with Ukraine, you know, his, mm. um, you know, the, the, the way the economy is run. I mean, all of that, the, the, the people who have had the, the worst time because of it is not, you know, not us, it's the Russians. Um, and so, yes, it does seem very counterproductive that he continues sure. to run his economy the way he does. And the difficulty is, is that, you know, the question is, you know, who is his policy for? Mm. Is his policy for Russia and Russians or is it for him and his coterie? You know? mm. And mm. if you begin to think it's for him and his coterie, then you, well, maybe it doesn't matter that it's declining. Mm. You know? and, mm. you, and if you look at their behavior and their interests... And, you know, their interests are to continue doing what they're doing. Um, you know, they're interested in staying in power. And, you know, somehow liberalizing their system, they would lose power. Lose and power. so they don't want to lose power. So, yeah. And so I think waiting for him to change his behavior because his country is declining. Objective economic is, reasons. You know, like, yeah. for, all, for objective economic reasons yeah. is, is a kind of false hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that's my, and the other, you know, the other thing is even if, you know, even if Russia is declining, just like the Soviet Union was declining for about 70 years <laughs> Takes too. Takes a long time, yeah. But, but just if you are, you know, in the course of declining, they can still do very many dangerous things. I mean, exactly. it may be that... He feels pushed, you know, and cornered, and he decides he needs to have a nuclear war. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but, sure. it, but I mean, there is a, you know, the it is, it's not necessarily the case that in decline they become sort of nicer. I mean, they I mean, no. the opposite might happen. No, I agree. I think decli declining great powers can be the most dangerous in the world. Famously, because, yeah. yeah. Okay, Gideon. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that also maybe one of the things that's slightly alarming about the world is that. Lots of countries are trying to make themselves great again. Let's see, so <laughs> to make make America great Name again. One, I mean, Putin's Putin's slogan might as well be "Make Russia great again." Xi Jinping is "Make China great again." Uh, there's yeah. an element of that in India and Japan as well. There's a sort of nostalgic nationalism setting in. And indeed, you could argue Brexit was about "Make Britain great again." Mm. And in all of those cases, the logic isn't primarily economic. There's no. a sense that there's a you know, there's a sort of national greatness that we're after. We're, we're actually prepared to take sacrifices, you know, mm -hmm. so that that was part of the whole thing in Russia. We're not just economic people. We have pride and, and so on. Mm. And uh, you'll hear, of course, there's an argument for Brexit where people say, you know, it's going to set the economy free and we'll be much richer. But equally, I've heard Brexiteers say, yeah, so what if the economy shrinks 5%? We've got our national independence back. Uh, and, and so... Uh, you, and you, you could get that kind of thinking in, in China as well. I mean, one of the g good things, I think, about Deng Xiaoping and the successes was that they concentrated like a laser on, on economics and on just mm. making the country richer. But maybe they're now rich enough that they're beginning to think about mm. national greatness in other ways. Which brings you in, Jonathan, I think, really. Yes, I mean, I didn't think... Peaceful that, rise that carries on well, or the not. The strange thing is, I mean, the, because since Tiananmen, certainly, I mean, the Chinese system has been you people will make you richer and you leave the politics to us, the Communist Party. And therefore, economic growth has become the legitimacy, the yeah. talisman for legitimacy for the Communist Party. And I think actually, so differently from what you're saying, I mean, this may happen someday, but they are stuck. The mindset is stuck there. And actually, this is why China is going to be limited, strangely enough, because Xi Jinping and co. are so frightened of declining. You should have, growth should be not, 6.5% or 4%, which is quite enough to create jobs and so on in China. You could do the reforms that you need 
uh, structurally, that would take growth down to around 4, 4.5%. You could do that for a few years, and then you would have a much stronger China mm. from all points of view. But the, the party will not do that. It puts that off endlessly. It agreed on a big reform program three years ago. It's been tiny what has actually been done because it is afraid of declining growth. And actually, the fact that keeping the Chinese rich is the Communist Party's main concern actually is, for me, a break uh, on, on, on the Communist Party. Yeah. The danger would be, of course, that if you had a trade war and a, a collapse, because China needs the trade surplus to keep... to fund the currency and for lots of other reasons and to keep people involved. If you had that, you might have a real swing towards nationalism against Japan. And then, mm. you know, do we get the Third World mm. War in the Pacific with Taiwan, you know, Taiwan being invaded? You can see you can do all kinds of Tom Clancy scenarios out of mm. that. Mm. Um, mm. I'm not writing that book quite You're yet. You're not writing that book? No, not no. quite yet. Not at least until China's got a second aircraft carrier. That's, that's two years' time. Two years' time, yeah. So I, I'll get round to it. Who are they buying it off this time? No, they're building it. They're oh, they're building it. Oh, they're building it. Oh, they're building it. Oh, terrific. Good, good, good to know that balancing America. Okay, we've had some very interesting contributions from up this part of the, uh, the room. Uh, I think we should now open it up. Uh, ask any questions you like.